0: Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law and policy. It's going to be a pretty short introduction today. I posted on social media that Deanna and I were going to do our first Ask Us Anything about Canadian immigration law that wasn't file-specific. We got a lot of questions and narrowed it down to 10. Uh, There were also a few questions that we have decided to turn into standalone episodes that we mentioned at the start of the podcast. If you would like to support the show, please leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I can be reached at stephen.murins at larley.com, S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. Deanna can be reached at deanna at mcraela dot at M-C-C-R-E-A-L-A-W dot C-A, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I took to Twitter uh, last week to say that Deanna and I were doing an ask us anything or ask me anything for today's episode, and we received a lot of questions. Uh, that we've condensed into 10 for today's podcast. Um, we're going to do about five minutes per question. I've got a little timer in front of me so that we don't go over on each question. There's a few questions that we've decided to do specific episodes on um, that we will mention. I think in the outset, I'll say the questions that we want to do a specific episode on. And Deanna wanted to touch on one of them just quickly. So the questions that we are dedicating specific episodes on, there were a few actually on economics and immigration. One, for example, is from a consultant in Calgary who wanted to know our thoughts on the current labour shortage in Canada that employers are facing and whether reducing work permit application backlogs could help the Canadian economy and the shortage. We're going to be recording an episode in January where we speak with an economics professor Uh, specifically about economics and immigration. We also received a question about Nigeria, and it's the, the really low approval rate for pretty much all applications from Nigeria, or Nigerian citizens, and we're going to do an episode also in January, specifically on issues pertaining to Nigerians and immigration. Similarly, we received one question about whether we think IRCC is systemically racist. And we're going to do an episode, I think, specifically on that. We haven't uh, scheduled it yet. Um, We don't actually have a guest for it planned. So if you want to be a guest or if you know of someone who would be interested in this topic, let us know. And then finally, we were asked whether we believe that any applications or streams of applications will be terminated either in 2022 or in the years to follow and we're going to do an episode specifically on that where we just go over the history of IRCC well not IRCC but parliament passing laws to terminate uh, whole streams of applications. A final question that we're going to do an episode specifically on But Deanna wanted to address today as our first ask me anything question was from someone who asked whether changing sexual orientation could lead to removal from Canada. And when I asked the person if she could elaborate, she said, if somebody did a refugee application where their basis of claim was on persecution due to them being a lesbian, And they then change or not change their sexual orientation, but their sexual orientation evolves so that they become bisexual after they've been granted refugee status and permanent residency. Could they, I guess, have their refugee status vacated? So Deanna, do you want to take it away with your short answer?
1: Yeah, my short answer essentially is that vacation proceedings can be evoked where there's um, an application by the minister uh, where they believe that the the basis upon which somebody's refugee claim was made was misrepresented. So, um, and there are examples that you can find in the jurisprudence where an application is made because they think that um, the the basic premise um, upon which somebody's refugee claim was made was, uh, was not credible. Um, they can make an application to vacate that status. So um, the question in those cases will be whether or not there are credible grounds to believe that that application was not credible in the first place. So it becomes like a factual determination. And so whether it's like an, um, you know, as Steve said, like an evolution of one's orientation or whether or not those things are, you know, there's never, as we know, there's never like a a hard line in in some of these things. You know, uh, I think it will go back to whether or not there was a question of as to credibility in the first place. Um, So, so that's what it would come down to I think Um, and often I think these things come up in the context of like a subsequent application that has been made where um, it goes back to whether or not the facts were incorrect at the time that they were claimed. Uh, in the first instance. So um, if at the time that the claim was made, the person did truly um, believe that they were a person who was, um, who was lesbian, and that that was a, that was a true claim at the time, then I don't think that it would, that would, it would render their, their status vulnerable. But again, it's just a matter of uh, being able to defend that, uh, you know, uh, at the time the application is made by the minister. But again, I think that it does warrant, I don't think we've ever done a session on Um, uh, vacation proceedings or cessation proceedings. And I do know that quite a lot of applications to vacate or um, cessation applications are being made these days. So I think that uh, Steve and I have just said that that would be something that we should dedicate an episode to in the future. So uh, we will be looking for a guest on on those topics.
0: You want to take maybe a minute to just uh, explain the two terms, vacation and cessation?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, vacation is when... Um, as I said very briefly, uh, where there's um, uh, an allegation that the, that, the, that the basis upon which somebody made a refugee claim was not was uh, misrepresented in the first place, so that's um, and I think it's under section uh, 109, but anyways I won't I won't try and cite the regulations because I don't have them in front of me. Um, that's when an application can be made to vacate those um, uh, that status um, cessation is would have a similar outcome, but it's more when um, an application is made to to terminate the status somebody has acquired through a refugee process, but because the conditions in the country of citizenship may have changed or somebody has re-availed the protection of the state that they sought refugee protection from. So let's say you have sought protection from you know, Syria, but then you have gone back and tried to uh, visit that country again in the future. So often, um, cessation proceedings are brought if somebody tries to obtain a passport from the country that they sought um, asylum from. So, um, you know, both of them have the outcome of um, terminating the status you you obtained in Canada, but, um, you know, for slightly different reasons.
0: Yeah, um, and we will, Go on. So, yeah, we're going to do an episode specifically on vacation and cessation in more detail, but hopefully that answers uh, that listener's question with it depends. Um, it depends in the sense that uh, they would have to believe, or the immigration authorities would have to believe, that the original refugee claim based on being a lesbian was fake. So, question two. Is all, and we received several questions about this the caregiver backlogs. We received several questions on all backlogs, but the caregiver's stream was probably the most backlogged. I tweeted earlier in the week a stat uh, from IRCC, which was their commitment to, pro- or they say that their commitment and their commitment is to process 80% of applications within 12 months of the receive date. And as of September 2021, They had processed 1% of applications received in April 2020, 3% of applications received in May 2020, 3% of applications received in June 2020, and similar numbers uh, throughout. So obviously, they are nowhere near meeting their processing times. Um, I actually had one finalized in the sense that we filed a caregiver application for someone I believe in late 2019 and they then did a TRPR pathway application in May 2021 that has been approved and so then their caregiver pilot application was finalized in the sense that we got an email saying we noticed that you uh, received PR through a different stream therefore we are finalizing your application for the caregiver stream by withdrawing it. So I actually wonder how many of the applications that are being finalized right now are just being withdrawn because the applicants received permanent residence through the TRPR stream. But the question then that we were asked uh, was specific, does Deanna have any insight or information into what is going on with caregiver applications? Is IRCC working on them? And then multiple dates that People gave on when they submitted their applications with no movement. So, you do a lot of caregiver applications, um, or at least you used to. I don't know if you still have active caregiver files, but you have insight and what's going on.
1: Yeah, well, Deanna's going to need to be constrained by the five minute rule on this question for sure. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, as, as people who, who do a lot of work in this area know that there are a number of intersecting caregiver programs that have um, covered the field in the period of time since June 2019. You know, there's the legacy live-in caregiver program, then there was the interim pathway for caregivers, then there was the old pilots, then there was the new pilots, so um, there's been a lot of um, intersecting kind of programs. Right now, they all suck pretty much equally, except for the temporary to permanent um, uh, program which had that like very brief uh, um, day in the sun and as you know the one that was the one that worked for child care workers that one kind of filled quite quickly and some of those people are starting to get landed um, the one that's for the health care workers that one stayed there were positions um, available still even when that program kind of closed because uh, you know uh, it expired but um, the one that was the current pilots. First of all, the interim pathway for caregivers. I'm still, even though that program only opened for a very short period of time. I think it was um, early. It was it was open for a short time in 2019, and then for a short time again in 2020. I still have people that are pending in those two programs that have not been finalized. Um, I probably have filed about a hundred applications in the new pilots. Um, and from as early as when it first opened up, which was in, um, in June 2019, to date, I have not had a single decision on any of those applications. Um, I have had some starting to get work permits. I've had actually one work permit so far that was issued in those interim pilot, uh, those new pilots, the only one. <laughs> and I think that that was filed like, because when those, those pilots opened up, it was June 2019. But at the beginning, I wasn't using them because the interim pathway for caregivers was still available. And that one was much faster. So it wasn't until about September 2019 that I started using the new pathways. And the first one finally got a work permit, but still no final decisions. So they're basically, uh, they're basically just not moving. Um, and I've actually started bringing mandamus applications on some of those, but um, even those don't seem to be um, getting a lot of um, love yet. <laughs> um, they've started, you know, um, some of the mandamus applications are starting to, um, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten to the point just of um, having made the demand letters and I'm starting to um, see whether or not um, that's going to actually get them some attention and whether they're going to start moving. But um, but yeah, they're, they're really just, they're just not moving forward at all. And you know, as to why that is the case, I just don't know. Um, I I think that what I understand was the issue is that at the beginning of that program, they weren't weren't actually uh, that carefully (laughs) monitoring how many applications were in the door. And so it took, for the 2020 applications, it took from, um, we didn't even receive applications back until October that were being um, flagged as being beyond the quota, even though, from what I understand, the quota was actually met at some point, like in the spring. Um, So it really just was an issue in terms of their tracking where they were in their inventory. And um, anyway, so that's all I can say there is just, um, you know, people should not be surprised that the processing is massively slow. It's not unique to the application. It's just that they, they, I don't. they you know, as, as Steve stats say, they're just, they're just not moving those to finalization.
0: So my own theory is that because those applications, some of them will still require people to work, because you could file if you had no Canadian work experience, you could file if you already had two, and because some of them won't be ready for immediate finalization, my own theory is that it will slow down the drive to 401,000 immigrants that the government is so fixated on. And anything that can't quickly meet that target is just not being looked at. I could be completely wrong. Um, It also doesn't explain the why like, because the talk on this program has always been so sympathetic, especially from the previous, the last two immigration ministers um, so do you think, like, why do you think there's the disconnect between the talk and what's going on on the ground?
1: I don't know. I mean, this has always been the case with this program where the talk doesn't quite match the, the action. Because, I mean, in terms of the, the point that you make about um, they're not actually being able to, to meet the numbers, the fact is that, that it is a quoted program. So they still need to actually count them as being in the annual Mm. inventory per year because they have to cap it out by the end of the year, no matter what. Um, So, um, you know, they have to hit their number 2750 per program per year. And so um, there's just, there's no, there's no incentive why they shouldn't actually come to a final decision on those applications. Um, It just doesn't make any sense. Um, but I have just always found in the, like, you know, almost, almost 20 years since I've been practicing. And really my focus has so much been on this program, um, in this time that I've just never quite understood why there was so much PR saying that, you know, really efforts are going to be made to like, to be facilitative with this program. But every time a new program initiative comes forward, it just never plays out and, um, and, you know, even when they made the proposal on this program and, you know, we kept saying like, look, by blending overseas applicants with in Canada applicants, you're, you're creating the situation where new people wanting to get in are competing for the same places for those who are wanting to, who are already here, who have done the work experience who are wanting to regularize their status like this is not a good, this is not a good idea um and you know they were like oh okay we hear what you're saying but you know we think there's going to be plenty of room you know and yet like every year I've got people here who are just trying to like you know they came in under old legacy programs and now they're just wanting to get into the program so that they can reunite with family members and no they're getting they're getting capped out you know and now it's like two years running and they're getting capped out you know and so they can't so they have to just keep renewing their work permits and applying again in the following year. So so I really don't know. I just, um, this is a real head scratcher this program every, every time.
0: No. And it's uh, I mean, it falls into the whole stream, the whole discussion of what they're going to, whether they're going to terminate applications and whether the caregiver program, if they do, might be one of them. Cause a lot of these files, like people who are going to care for kids, there's this funny meme. I mean, funny, but sad meme going around on, Uh, Twitter, which is, you know, by the time someone's application to have someone be their caregiver is processed, they've gone from baby to adult to like senior citizen, who now need like the other knock for the home support worker. Um, Anyway, we went way over the five minutes. I told you. uh, But there's a couple questions that'll be less, I think. Uh, The next one, kind of a similar vein, uh, why are local visa offices like the New Delhi visa office not processing already approved express entry application why aren't they landing people and we received multiple variations of this question and i don't really know Um, i think that's kind of been what has confused everyone prior to june of this year it could be explained by the travel ban Um, but since june 2021 They have been letting people with approved immigration applications travel to Canada. So that is no longer the reason. Um, There are GCMS notes that seem to say that an application has been approved. Some of the stats you see show that applications, thousands of them, are finalized and ready for landing. And yet the landing just seems to be really delayed. um, And it's not clear why.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was also an issue in terms of like, I mean, these are um, offices presumably where they would need to issue visa counterfoils, I presume, right? And I know that the VACs in India um, were operating at very reduced capacity for a very prolonged period of time just because of the pandemic. Um, so I don't know if that can explain a certain amount of it. Um, but again, I think that, um, you know, you do begin to wonder. Um, you know how much of it is just about like the political will to kind of, um, you know, to get those those visas issued and people on airplanes.
0: Yeah, um, there are definitely country specific issues. It's become really hard for people in China to get new passports. For sure. uh, But why
1: visas from China?
0: Yeah, but why uh, why there can't at least be an update that says the application's approved? Although what's weird about that is like. If someone is able to get to Canada and signal that they're here, then files do move. Um, and so they seem to be issued a, able to issue temporary resident visas and work permits. So why the actual immigration applications for people who are overseas are still delayed is less clear to me. Um, there's going to be the final question that uh, we are getting today or answering today will kind of tie in a lot of these questions. Um, so I'm going to move to number three, which is an interesting question on, uh, and it is, how do you think realistically IRCC should change their workflow and file processing since the number of applications grew significantly over the years and the number of applications didn't? I don't actually know if the number of applications has grown or shrunk too much, uh, but what is clear are the backlogs are soaring. Um, in November, I, we, and I think a few people published this, a memorandum to the minister, the deputy minister, called Managing the Federal High-Skilled Inventory. And it showed that there's currently an application inventory of over 760,000 people. Um, this was from September. I don't know what the current number is. But as of September 2021, The application inventory was 760,000 plus people, 360,000 of those were economic class files. And the total immigration goal for 2022 is 411,000 with 241,500 being economic class migrants. So you pretty much don't need any new applicants. Uh, And IRCC will be able to meet its targets for next year. I mean, I obviously they're not going to like completely freeze immigration intake. So, what do you think the solution to this is, or what will happen?
1: Well, just I mean, just as a pointer that that was kind of the exact purpose of Express Entry was to to eliminate the creation of these backlogs and to prevent. Um, you know, to, to prevent the creation of these backlogs that they couldn't manage.
0: Yeah. And now they have big backlog. I mean, I think they overshot intake. Um, one of the things that has always bugged me is the big focus on PR, like the target of 401,000, 360,000, when really as far as like who's coming into the country, who's using social services, who's paying taxes... It seems like the temporary resident number, which is way bigger, is more important. And I kind of wish, because a lot of this is driven by quotas. We don't want to go too far beyond 401. We don't want to be less than 401. And if we just moved away from caring about these quotas to just who's here, I I feel like, and you'll see news stories where it's, oh, there's now 401,000 immigrants. Can Canada... You know, absorb all these people and it's well a huge percentage of them are already here and why there should be backlogs for people who are already working in the country who hopefully aren't inadmissible if they're already in the country um, and just a better way to regularize their status or not to treat that as separate from maybe the permanent residence quotas for people who are overseas federal skilled workers Right. family reunification i don't know i think there needs to be some sort of a paradigm shift in how we view immigration and categorize immigration for people who are already in the country cuz i feel right. like if they removed that then getting permanent residence for people already in the country should be I mean, I don't know why it's not just based on, you know, tax returns, regardless of the job someone's in and if they can prove they've been working. Um, But assuming that that paradigm shift doesn't happen, I don't see a solution beyond there being backlogs. I don't know. I don't know if you have uh, thoughts on either paradigm shift and how we view immigration or if they don't dramatically increase the numbers, whether there any is any solution beyond just backlogs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I I definitely agree with you that a lot of it is a paradigm shift. And I think that the idea of um, those who are already in Canada, that, um, that there is something fundamentally different about enabling those who are already here to regularize their status as being something fundamentally different than those who are overseas applying from abroad to, to enter Canada, um, two entirely separate propositions. Um, but I think the other part for me that is, that is different is that, and this was supposed to be part of the proposition around global case management system is that there still are such massive regional disparities in terms of processing, um, that I think, Um, that I think that there is like a very siloed mentality towards like processing in one visa office versus processing in another and um, you know they can say that that is not the case but I think that we do see even just from the nature of the questions we're getting through this ask ask us anything kind of um, thing uh, that that is still very much the case and so Um, you know, maybe this is something that we can address in a sort of systemic discrimination kind of an episode, but um, there's still so much about, you know, um, what happens in visa processing, permanent resident visa processing in India versus what happens in visa processing in the United States. Like they're very much, um, it's a very different assessment process. So I think if it was a very, very standardized process where it was looking at, um, at the same set of criteria, regardless of where you're applying from, I think um, I think we'd have a very different and more streamlined, more efficient process overall.
0: Yeah, like I think there are, but again, like the, um, what drives a lot of it, at least on the permanent resident side, are these quotas. Mm-hmm. There are no quotas on the temporary stream, but yeah, backlogs from some countries are huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's then the disparity between those who get to apply at a port of entry because they're visa exempt. Yeah. And those who need a visitor visa, yeah, exactly. and have to apply online. Um,
1: and I think also, like, I mean, problems. there is there is always this um, this fundamental presumption that that somebody is intending to defraud the system unless they can prove otherwise. And I think that the fact that many, like, if you're applying from a visa-exempt country, you can come in, you can make your work permit application, and then you can appry- apply locally. It does fundamentally change the nature of the adjudication. So um so even though that might seem like okay well that's just based on um the location it's not just based on the location it's entirely um you know so we have have to talk about this from a substantive equality perspective not just about locale
0: I'd also like to see I think there's too much time and way too much brain power going into trying to figure out if someone is a cook a chef a food counter attendant and like distinguishing amongst knocks um and I don't don't really understand why that is such a big part of Canada's immigration system and this whole skilled unskilled classification and they're completely redoing the NOC system next year and I hope they take the opportunity to remove it
1: um I don't know I mean I you've I don't know if you've seen the the NOC that was just released it's like totally different codes but not entirely different classification system at all
0: but I think Um, they're moving beyond skill levels
1: Okay, they're just calling it
0: something different because they don't, <laughs> doesn't sound very, uh, you know, good to call someone unskilled, but yeah, I think they're moving, at least they're getting rid of those titles.
1: But even in terms of like, I mean, I know I spend a lot of time, um, you know, working admissibility cases and um, I understand, I mean, don't get me wrong, I believe in the integrity of the Canadian immigration system, but I find the amount of time and attention we spend on misrepresentation allegations, quite foolish. And I don't mean like when somebody has, you know, come to Canada under a false identity, but when somebody has accidentally failed to mention a forgotten U.S. visitor visa application that they made 20 years ago that they totally forgot about, and then, you know, you spend back and forth about whether or not that was a material misrepresentation like some of this is just foolish and um, you know and again this notion that this is going to hurt the integrity of the canadian immigration system you know like um, you know some of it it, it just feels very um, <laughs> not substantive and um, um, anyways
0: yeah oh and we've talked before about misrepresentation as a gotcha game going after low-hanging fruit oh, it really is Really um is. question five this one is almost a one word answer do you need to mention previous visa rejections and spousal sponsorship applications
1: a hundred percent you do you yep. need to mention every single one because and, and this was just it was almost a segue from my last point is that like applications get refused because you forgot to mention that you You know, when you were 12 years old, you got refused a visitor visa to go to the United States. This is actual decisions that get made.
0: Yep. Next question: Uh, Why can spouses from visa-exempt countries enter Canada on electronic travel authorizations, which, for those who don't know what that means, are just it's they're basically a short form that uh, takes a couple minutes normally for IRCC to automatically process uh, for people who are from visa exempt countries and then Americans don't even need that. They can just come to Canada. Anyways, to set up their life, apply for their sponsorship application inland, get open work permits, and have families and children inside Canada with their family while applications are being processed. While those who need visas must provide tons of evidence regarding the genuineness of their marriage, are often denied visitor visas to come to Canada. The Canadian citizen has to spend money traveling to the spouse. They have marriages through video screens. The ability to have kids can be delayed or reunified with children can be delayed. And long processing times. Is this fair? So the question is written kind of rhetorically. um, But no, of course it's not fair. I don't know an alternative way around it in a world where visas are required for people from certain countries. Um, But of course, for the individual whose life is on hold, of course, it's not fair.
1: And the thing that's, I mean, this, this question is put in such a way that like, the spouses from visa exempt countries can get open work permits. The thing that's super ironic about this is that the spouse of a foreign worker can get an open permit, but the spouse of a Canadian cannot get an open work permit unless they're applying through an in-Canada spousal and they've got first age approval. But it's just, again, the, the, the absurdity that like Yep, if you're the spouse of a foreign worker, you can get an open work permit straight up. If you're the spouse of a Canadian, you can't until you get a first stage of approval. If you're the spouse of a Canadian on a visa from a visa requiring country, you just probably can't get in at all. Yeah, <laughs> um, You know, like there's just like, there's like, there's so many levels of unfairness in this process and you know, you're hundred percent right about all of this. Um, but again, I think that this goes to the like, the same you know uh uh systemic racism kind of inequality of the system as it as it is um and uh yeah there's there's really nothing more (laughs) to say about it it is a it is a very um unfair process and and this kind of segues right into the next question which is whether or not like the question was said like why is there a particular hate, 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 hatred toward outland spousal applications? It takes the longest to process with the most intense scrutiny of all the streams. Where does it all come from? And I remember back in the day, it used to be that outside Canada spousals would process faster. And that was one of the incentives to choosing an outside Canada processing over inside Canada processing. And I would say to clients, you know, outside Canada processing is faster because the department knows that, you know, there's an there's a desire to reunite a couple. Whereas inside Canada, you have the advantage of being able to apply for a work permit, but it's gonna be slower overall. But with the pandemic, that changed. Um, Outside Canada became as long as, if not longer than inside Canada processing. And so um, I don't know why that came to be the case. Um, I don't know if I would say like, I don't know that I would agree that it's more scrutiny than an in inside Canada. I think that on equal facts, it would be the same amount of scrutiny. It just depends on the visa office concerned.
0: Yeah. And for those who don't know what we're talking about, there's two. There are two, mm-hmm. there are two application streams. We're not just talking about where someone lives. It's a bit of an odd. One of the oddities of the immigration system is there is the inside Canada stream and the outside Canada stream. And mm-hmm. there's benefits and disadvantages. To both. So if you file in the inside Canada stream, you can get a work permit. If you file in the outside Canada stream, you can't. If you file in the inside stream, you don't have the ability to appeal a refusal. If you do the outside Canada stream, you do have the ability to appeal a refusal.
1: Make um, it even stranger. Like let's say, for example, my spouse was a national of South Africa. Um, If I apply outside of Canada, my application is likely going to end up at the visa office in Pretoria. But if my spouse has a Canadian visa and is able to come to Canada, I can either apply inside or outside. I don't have to apply by one or the other. So you do have this choice. But if I apply inside Canada... And then my spouse goes outside of Canada and can't get back in, my application will end up kind of falling down and, you know, they can just refuse it because the person is not inside Canada. So there's like this whole decision making process that goes into deciding which one to use.
0: Oh, yeah. And yeah, I uh, I didn't mention that you can apply from the outside Canada stream while inside Canada. The actual approval rate, as far as intense scrutiny goes, actually isn't the family class does have a lower approval rate than Express Entry. But the lowest approval rate actually is the self-employed class for people who want to start businesses in self-employment. It's abysmal. It's like below 50%. um, And none are being processed right now, not to take away from issues in the outside Canada sponsorship stream. Um, Do you remember back in like 2013, the inside Canada stream seemed to process or balloon to like three years? And that's when they brought in The open work permit option for it so yeah the uh yeah. yeah it's always
1: like a pros and cons thing as to which one to do um but i i honestly think that like the um you know the the outside canada process to me in my experience, doesn't have a higher refusal rate than the, it's just, it does, I mean, there are certain visa offices that I would just say, in my experience, are kind of notorious. They're just, yep. they, um, and, you know, like, the department can say that they're, they're all deciding their applications on equal facts, but I think um, any, Immigration lawyer, um, especially those who do litigation, will know that there are certain visa offices that just take a very, um, a very challenging stance, especially in spousal interviews. And uh, yeah, it just know, what always surprises
0: me is how they're able to forecast in their immigration planning how many Canadians are going to marry a foreign national. I, I, well, just when they pro like they'll say, okay, our goal this year is this many applications. And we anticipate this many and they're pretty like close. Like, I don't know if we're just that predictable as humans that the planners at IRCC have figured out how many each year, what percentage of Canadian citizens and permanent residents will marry someone abroad and try to sponsor them. But I've always found that, i always found the planning side to be interesting. It'd be neat to see what goes into it behind the uh, we'll scenes. Question seven was, what do you think about, or question eight is, what do you think about IRCC's IRCC having 3.5 local workers to every Canadian employed at visa offices, is this appropriate? Is this what causes corruption? Why is IRCC hiring foreigners to process immigration applications? Is this a threat to national security? So there's a lot built in there. I actually don't know these stats that well. I don't, you hear about about people who know about people who know about people who know about people who had to pay a bribe. Uh, but, it, you know, it's always someone who, someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. And like, I've never encountered it. Yeah, I'm not aware of any issues with locally engaged officers or corruption. Uh, if anyone is definitely, you know, email me. But I don't see why it would be a threat to national security. That being said, as far as delays that were related to COVID, you know, in some of the staffing plans, it did seem that. They would let Canadian citizens working at the visa offices work remotely. This was the case in, I believe, India from what I read, um, but I might have the country wrong, but it was somewhere where locally engaged staff weren't allowed to work remotely, which would be a huge reduction in the workforce that can work Uh, at the height of COVID.
1: The only thing I would say, and this is totally anecdotally, but not at all statistical or, um, but just what I hear a lot of the time from clients is um, anecdotally, a lot of clients say that they find the locally engaged staff the most difficult to get past. Um, And this was certainly back in the day when I had a lot of clients appearing at the visa office on caregiver applications, that they found the locally engaged staff the toughest. The other thing I would say is that um, in visa office decision making, there's a lot of dis- like a lot of adjudication that falls upon um, what are they called? Um, like sort of uh, country conditions, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, and so I think that the rationale that the department has on engaging locally engaged staff is because it's what they bring in terms of what are the traditions that they can expect. So for example, when you're talking about a sponsorship, like what are the traditions that are in that culture that, you know, like, are you, um, is this a traditional marriage ceremony? Is this a traditional, whatever the case may be. And that um, that going to the insights and the wisdom that the locally engaged staff can bring about what is a traditional marriage ceremony is brings an insight. And I would just say that in general, I find that, um, you know, I I have hesitancy around that because even though somebody, you know, um, might not be employing a tradition that is within keeping of what is typical within that society, doesn't necessarily mean to me that it's not genuine. And so what I often find in litigation is that they are being challenged because their relationship or because their marriage ceremony doesn't match what is typical within that society. But often those, what is expected or what is traditional doesn't end up in the reasons. It's just that we just find that this relationship is not genuine. So I would prefer if um, they weren't being held up to some unknown, undisclosed tradition. Um, And so, For me having that like local knowledge isn't necessarily elevating to the adjudicative experience it's also just like it just sort of adds in certain expectations that i don't know that make the 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 adjudication process less transparent you know less accountable because you know um, I don't think that I necessarily need to know all of the ins and outs of a Hindu ceremony to be able to determine whether or not a relationship is genuine.
0: Yeah. Um, and then if they do that inside Canada, they don't have the benefit of that locally engaged staff anyways, because it's processed inside Canada.
1: Exactly. You can still ask the question, you know, but I just feel like sometimes it just means certain steps get skipped, you know, like, well, you yeah. didn't have this. So to me, this like, I, you know, this makes me, Oh, you know, like, Um, And a lot of, to me, a lot of questions don't get asked like, okay, well, this person's from that cast and that person's from that cast. So it strikes me that this doesn't seem right, you know, but like, I think a lot of assumptions end up getting made because of those, that local knowledge that people might have. But um, to me, it's just hard to distinguish between what is secret knowledge and what is stereotype, you know, (laughs) like... Um, so I don't know if I would go as far as to call it corruption or national security, but I just kind of like, I'm all about like procedural fairness and like accountability and transparency and decision-making. So, um, you know, I, I think also at the same time, I think it's just a cost question as to whether or not hiring locally engaged staff is less costly, I think that's, yeah. so, but I, I don't know. I don't, I can't speak to the policy reasons why they do it like that.
0: No, and I um have you heard of anything about bribes or anything? I or corruption? I haven't.
1: Um you know, I I'm... have, but again, like I just I don't feel like I'm in a position to determine. Like I've certainly heard stories like that in certain visa offices, but I just um I just I, I don't feel like I'm in a position to determine whether or not that's um, you know, those are um, you know, cred credible. I don't know.
0: Yeah. No, that's uh, the same as as me. Yeah. Um, Question nine. Why? What? Why is Canada's artificial intelligence program causing the rejection of many visas? How does it work? So there's an assumption in that question, which is that the artificial intelligence that IRCC uses is causing the rejection of visas. Um, We did two podcasts on artificial intelligence. Uh, But just to summarize, and a lot of this is really guesswork because the department hasn't ever actually, as far as I know, proactively come out and said how its software works. People seem to be learning stuff through federal court cases and affidavits that the Department of Justice is providing, as well as Access to Information Act requests. But what we can say with certainty is that um, artificial intelligence is being used to triage most, at least temporary resident visa applications from uh, people in China and India. Uh, I'm not aware of it being used in other visa offices, although it might be. The triage sorts applications into three streams. Uh, Those that are considered low risk are automatically approved, at least for eligibility. And there's some uncertainty over who does the admissibility check. Although, again, if all it is is reading a police certificate, I don't know why artificial intelligence, if artificial intelligence can review hundreds of pages and determine the likelihood that someone's gonna leave Canada by the end of their authorized stay, I don't know why it can't look at a police certificate and just say yes, no to criminal record. Um, Anyway, supposedly it doesn't do admissibility. Then those that are triaged as stage two or three are manually reviewed. Um, I had seen somewhere through an Access to Information Act request that in order to ensure that visa officers were still being diligent, that they were not being told why applications were triaged the way that they were, so that officers would still have to uh, read the entirety of the applications before them. Um, Although there was some confusion about this because I think, uh, well, I'll just read the footnote that off the, to this memo, which said that as of January 28, 2020, officers are now provided with some key facts about the client to reduce the time spent searching for information in the case management system. And that brings, uh, that kind of summarizes, I think, concern one that people have, which is a lot of the stuff around artificial intelligence seems to all be geared to reducing the amount of time that officers read applications. And so the other part of the artificial intelligence discussion is something that isn't really artificial intelligence, but a software called Chinook, and then I think Haraya in the Philippines. Um, And that is a bulk processing tool that allows IRCC officers to bulk review applications in something that looks like an an Excel spreadsheet, where they can bulk refuse applications. And as of 2020, this was being used in New Delhi and then the Indian offices, Abu Dhabi, Ankara, Bangkok, Beijing, Colombo, Dakar, Guangzhou, Ho Chi Minh, Islamabad, Lima, Manila, Mexico, Moscow, Nairobi, Riyadh, Rome, Shanghai, Singapore, Warsaw, at least. So it's now clearly this software called Chinook, is being used by most visa posts outside Canada. I don't know if it's being used inside Canada. And the concern that people have with Chinook isn't that Chinook makes the refusals, although I think some people seem to have that belief. The concern that I have is whether officers are just reviewing what is in these Chinook spreadsheets or if they're still reading the entirety of applications given the huge time pressure that's on them um, because I think you know anyone who obtains internal reasons or does judicial review has reason to believe that applications aren't being read um, I don't know if you have thoughts on any of that or
1: you've summarized pretty well
0: you I mean you've seen like the GCMS notes which clearly suggest Either that applications weren't being read or that when it came to the refusal due to either a lack of time or care, there was no effort to make it seem like the application was read.
1: Yeah,
0: And so an example would be like, you see refusals that say applicant has never traveled to Canada and, or when they traveled to Canada did not comply with the requirements of their stay. And you just look at that and you're like, well, You can't have both of those. Um, So what, what actually led to the refusal? There is some concern amongst practitioners that, and I don't know what your thoughts on this are, as to whether challenging decisions is now going to become a protracted process because a file will be refused because it maybe didn't receive attention or proper reasoning But the actual application might still be one that would be refused if it did. So you no longer know kind of what the consequence of a judicial review in terms of the applicant's ability to enter Canada may be. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, whether it's impacting the value of judicial review.
1: Well, I mean, generally I have, some concern about the value of judicial review right now, mostly because of the huge volume of material before the federal court right now. um, I would say um, in the last year, I would say um, the ability, like one's ability to negotiate settlements at the Department of Justice right now is a little bit impeded just because they're so inundated with litigation right now that, um, that, Um, you know, through no fault of their own, I feel like the lawyers of justice are just like, they're just, they're super overwhelmed by litigation at this moment. Yeah. Uh, And so, and I think even worse than that is that sometimes even when you succeed at federal court, you go back to the visa office and get another garbage decision. And so I've had um, a very large number of cases that have gone, we've succeeded at federal court, you go back, you end up back at court again. So... Um, I think that my concern right now with federal court is that, you know, the, you know, there needs to be like a substantive review of the quality of decision making at the visa offices, like, given that the only remedy you can get at the court is to go back to the visa office, the courts are not willing to intervene and substitute their own decision for that being made at the visa office. Um, yeah. I've tried and tried again. So, um, you know, so I think that it's like, and, and, and I don't think that this changes the question too much, but like, you know, if you're still getting poor quality, you know, spit out, you know, like from a list of 20 just possible decisions, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. that you're gonna get like, you know, federal court is only kind of a band-aid solution if you're just gonna end up back in the same merry-go-round. And, you know, I've said this before on the podcast that like Vavilov talked about, you know, like, if you're just gonna end up back on the same merry-go-round, then the courts have to step up and be willing to, to do something different. And so that's kind of like, I mean, all of these conversations we've had around AI, my concern is not so much the concern around um, triage, you know, but rather like, how is this going to grow and how does it change the overall, you know, rule of law and like, are we yeah. okay with the idea that just like substantive decision-making by a human is going to go away because like, you know, it doesn't really comfort me that much to be like, okay, it's all right. We'll go to court. We'll get it sent back so that the computer can decide and give us a different standardized reason next time, you know, like, um,
0: it's very surprising to me that there's like, these triage and Chinook appears to have been in place since at least 2018. And there's not a single federal court decision that mentions them. And it almost seems like, I mean, I'll always remember when, you know, uh, I appeared in court once and someone said, well, we have to, of course, the material wasn't all read, but the system depends on us kind of not, well, pretending was the exact word that it had all been read and i feel like it's just very surprising to me that um or kind of troubling that all this jurisprudence that you know presumes that all the material was read um and that officers were individually reading applications before and there's no mention in any of these decisions of bulk processing reading applications and spreadsheets, pressure to go as fast as possible and possibly only read uh, certain parts of applications. Um,
1: I really hated that Newfoundland nurses' decision. It's like officers need to be presumed to have read all of the things on the file. I really, and I thought that the Vavilov decision did a lot to say like, that's not good enough. That like, if the reasons don't actually say why you've refused, You would you would mention Steve that you wanted to do um, a session on costs and like I got my first costs order um, in my career not that long ago and it was one where the case had gone back for a second time and we got the same garbage decision on the second time I got another one where Uh, Mr. Justice Barnes said, I'm not gonna order costs, but if we get another crap decision for the third time, then I would consider costs. But he said (laughs) in his career, he's only ordered costs like a handful of time. And this is a very senior member of the bench. But again, it's sort of like, what's it gonna take to make the bench start saying like, look, um, like we are not satisfied with the quality of decision-making because I think somebody needs to hold the, the, the visa offices to task. I mean
0: for me it's just like the decisions because we now know how the triaging and bulk processing works I feel like the decisions aren't accurately ref- like they don't when you're reading federal court decisions you you aren't you you would you don't get an understanding any of how the applications are actually processed and how they're actually reviewed. Um, I actually am optimistic on AI, though. I feel like we're in a transitory phase where once all these issues are worked out, I think AI could do wonderful things. My only concern would be I hope it's properly funded. Um, because from what I understand, like it's not something that should be done on the cheap, especially given how you know important the consequences are. Um, and I just hope the funding remains there so that they aren't using. Well, like we always hear about like, Oh, GCMS is antiquated out of date and doesn't, you know, meet the needs of, uh, visa processing the forms that I are like that Adobe, you know, they use some version of Adobe that Adobe no longer supports, which is why apparently you can't view it in most browsers, the forms, And I just like, I shudder to think that, you know, five years from now, it'll be, well, there's this triage mechanism that is outdated and it doesn't work the way it should, but we don't have the budget to replace it. So I just hope that um, the people at IRCC involved in AI always get the uh, budgeting they need if it's going to be increasingly important.
1: And then the yeah, last question. Oh. Really what um, Aditya Mohan said on our last Section, which is that like a, a good AI system is one that's properly supervised and I just I've never seen the department run a tech platform that was properly tested supervised managed monitored you know so I just I yeah. a little bit I shudder a little bit to think of them running an AI system um, for for all of the reasons you've just said
0: and then the final question which sort of ties everything together why is Canada's immigration department so secretive Well, and then there's also lack of transparency and accountable? Um, I want to focus mainly on the first two are very similar, secretive and lack of uh, transparency. I haven't been practicing as long as you, but is this the most secretive you've seen it or has it always been like this?
1: I think it's always been like this. I think that, I mean, from, I I think that what we always hear from the department is that, you know, if they are too open and clear about what the rules are and what, you know, what's happening behind the curtain, then people will start gaming the system. And I've always been a little perplexed by this because um, it's always, it's always to me, this fundamental premise that, Um, that everyone is out to defraud the system and that running a system that's open and um, that the rules are clear and that the system is open and knowable, that that will increase fraud and that will increase, um, you know, malevolence. Um, To me, it it sort of, I just, it, it sort of, it flies in the face what of what I believe about the role of law and about you know the yeah. requirement of accountability, um, you know I I've always kind of been sort of baffled by the the department's sense of the need to continuously add new enforcement mechanisms when we have a very robust enforcement machinery. Uh, around the Act. And so I think that coming at every adjudicative process as if uh, we are assuming that every single applicant is intending to game the system creates uh, an environment where uh, just the rules and the policies are so difficult to know and so difficult to understand that there are these what we call the gotchas, you know, all the way through the system that, um, that a lot of a lot of the uh, mistakes made are like honest mistakes and misunderstandings just designed, just created by the fact that the, that the mechanism is so difficult to understand, so difficult to know, um, so difficult to navigate. And it is, it is really truly an access to justice issues. Simple things that should be able to be done without the use of counsel are just
0: mm-hmm.
1: unnavigable. Um, And so, um, yeah, to me, this is just a product of it being, there being a lack of transparency, so much secrecy, and a real lack of accountability in terms of um, what the processes are and what they're trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah, I have an email that I received um, over the weekend from someone who, and they phrased it, this is more of an expression of opinion than it is a question, but it kind of summarizes this, which is, you know, for all of this year, the Canadian experience class has been Canada's largest immigration program. And I'll just start reading the email um, from S. I'll just say S. So uh, since September 14th, there have been no Canadian experience class draws. I understand the government has targets to fulfill considering the Afghanistan scenario, but what should the candidate who's completed a year and is eligible for CEC Due. My work experience or my work permit is expiring soon. I'm an applicant in the pool, and my work permit will expire this month. The eligibility criteria for the postgraduate work permit extension under the public policy is I don't meet. Not expecting a CEC draw over a month or two is not the candidate's fault. Some of the companies will not issue LMIAs. And searching for a job without an ability to extend a work permit is not easy. I keep, I need to keep working to pay my rent and pay back loans. I'm contributing to the country economically and paying taxes, but I have no idea what is going on. Um, should I be hopeful that there will be CEC draws in the near future? And I guess the takeaway from that is that, and it's just one example where CEC draws just stop as of September 14. People who are trying to plan their future have no idea when they'll resume. They, through ATIPS, have kind of learned why it paused because the inventory is huge, as we discussed earlier. Um, but it's just this the secrecy. I mean, the other big example of this would be when they did that huge draw in February. And we had discussed at the time that, like, before, council who would register people with low points there was a debate about whether that was negligent. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the, the points drop super low. So then everyone starts rushing into the pool, but they don't do it again. So like, It was just, uh, and it's just, it's why amazing. not tell people that it was one-off? Why not tell people, um, I don't get it. I tweeted that there was this memorandum to the deputy minister called uh, from 2020 proposal to provide clients with meaningful updates on processing for approval and the actual like title i just thought was funny because the idea that you need a memorandum to the deputy minister about a proposal to inform clients with meaningful updates kind of just summarizes it Um, well i
1: mean just also the whole thing about like please don't expect an update on your application because we are attending to people from afghanistan like speaking of somebody who is representing clients from afghanistan like they have no updates either you
0: know like
1: (laughs) Uh, people who are trying, like claimants who are in Canada, who are from Afghanistan, they can't even get eligibility interviews, you know, like people who are overseas from Afghanistan and who are pinging that like emergency email for um, people who are abroad from Afghanistan, no reply, nothing. So like, again, it's sort of like, you know, it's very, um, you know, it's not like there's one group that is actually getting some attention. It's really like it's a full wholesale. um, And and, and there's a lot of lobbying right now, for the department that um, right now people that are outside of Canada, who are Afghan nationals who are seeking to um, get assistance from the government, Most of them are in countries where they cannot get a UNHCR designation. The sponsorship agreement holders who could support them have used up their their places in their quota. So unless the department removes the requirement for them to get that UNHCR designation, which they can't get in any of the surrounding countries, they're outside of Afghanistan now, not able to do anything, not able to leverage the programs that the department um, issued. Um, for those who are still inside of Afghanistan. So it's kind of like on all of these fronts, like it just feels like there's, there's just a lack of honesty. There's a lack of honesty and a lack of transparency. So every time I get one of those bounces, like, sorry, we can't tell you what's happening with your work permit that you need to maintain your status in Canada. We're attending to people in Afghanistan. I feel a very deep sense of frustration and sarcasm about that, because like, well, then how come you're not answering my message about the person who's the Afghan national currently stranded in India who can't maintain her status in any country and is basically stateless at this moment, you know. So, um, so I think that there's an overwhelming sense of frustration with the department right now. All you need to do is watch the Twitter feed on the department right now. Yes. Couples who are, you know, separated and have been separated for two years that are just wondering when they're going to be able to be together. Like I think um, the frustration with the department is right now at an all-time high. And I think that their trait message, like, please don't ask us for information about your life, because we are attending to others. I think his really, people's fuse has run quite short right now. And so, and I don't think people are buying. And I think that the use of the, oh, sorry, we're we're attending to people from Afghanistan. I think that, um, uh, I I call BS on that, basically. I think
0: it's been very detrimental also to people's perception of refugees. Because with the Syrian refugee resettlement, which was bigger. If I remember correctly, I think the numbers were bigger. Uh, I used to always tell people, you know, oh, no, that's not impacting your application. I never got the sense that the Syrian resettlement really did impact people's applications. Yeah. Whereas the Afghanistan one is like, happen. in your face, you will be impacted by this. Yeah. Um,
1: but I think you're right, though. It's, it's led to, uh, you know, we do hear all sorts of like pretty kind of, um you know, xenophobic remarks um, from those who are waiting for a sponsorship. But I mean, I think that, um, you know, there are systemic barriers right now preventing those who are actually fleeing the crisis in Afghanistan from getting anywhere right now. So the fact that they're being leveraged by the department as being an excuse for why you can't extend your stay here in Canada, um, it it feels pretty shady.
0: Yeah, I'm actually reading um, Michael Lewis's book, The Premonition, and it's all about the CDC and the build up lead up to COVID 19. And it has some passages about people who work for um, veterans, whatever the, the veterans hospitals or whatever the age I can't even remember the name of the agency right now, but how um, those agencies operated under this always try to disrupt things the most and have the least possibly bad news leak, because the politicians will leap all over anything that's even slightly negative. And I wonder if that's what drives a lot of the, um, the hesitancy, I guess, to deliver bad news or updates, in that as soon as you, know, you say something, uh, it may be negatively politicized. And so the result is to just go super secretive. Maybe. But then that just leads to everyone assuming the worst I find. So I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. It's like with the but AI, yeah. how, you know. But they, when
1: you think about like somebody writing to the department and saying, hi, I'm trying to maintain status and here's what I want to find out. And you get a reply back saying, sorry, we can't help you right now. This is not what we consider an urgent inquiry. You know, this is what we are attending
0: yeah. to. Like, but if you fall out of status, don't worry will be there to ruin your life.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just it. Like, uh, it doesn't actually translate into any true amnesty is what I'm finding. And so it's a bit more of the, like, um, you know I do have a fairly, um, you know I do have a sarcastic attitude toward it because I'm not finding that it's ending up in any actual len- leniency in, in in the end result. So yeah, yeah.
0: So I guess before we end, it's not one of the questions, but we kind of just ended on a negative note. So maybe optimistic for twenty twenty two.
1: optimistic for twenty twenty two. Do I have to answer in a positive way?
0: Um, maybe one thing positive. One thing. Amongst positive. The-
1: um. Okay. Well, I am. I'm. I'm okay. I am a little bit optimistic about the use of these new representative portals. Isn't that weird?
0: No, I'm super optimistic about them. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm optimistic. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I was optimistic for 2021 that a lot of the backlogs would be cleared. That was to
1: show um,
0: you. I know. So I, I, I'm not. Am I optimistic for 2022? I mean, they've paused intake. I am optimistic. Oof, but they have a minority government. I was going to say I'm optimistic that they're going to do that paradigm shift and try to say...
1: Me? You really aren't I
0: know. I mean, is that just like pie-in-the-sky optimism <laughs> that they're going to say, look, like, we're in the same way that the Conservatives moved the International Mobility Program out of the Foreign Worker Program. I'm optimistic that they'll follow something like what new zealand did and reduce the barriers to staying and try to explain that the way we that they have previously been presenting stats just wasn't the right metric
1: i don't think you're optimistic i think you're a dreamer my dear
0: (laughs) hey it was in their platform they wouldn't lie um, that they would, what was oh, their no, platform? Never, yeah. A pathway to permanent residence for all foreign workers. Cause it's like, I don't know. I just, uh, it just, it's, it, everything seems fixated on the wrong number.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I really hope you're right, Steve. Yeah. Uh, my vote is for Steve.
0: Yeah, exactly. But then again, I'm the one who, uh, you know, I I was completely wrong on uh, 2021 and whether all the backlogs would gonna. be clear. <laughs> exactly.
1: If you're not, go Steve, go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's go, uh, we'll see how it all in